Al Jazeera Podcasts. Jews have lived in the Muslim world for as long as Islam has existed in the Muslim world. Anti-Semitism is the crime of the West. You have historic Jewish communities in the Muslim world. Show me that counterpart in the West. It doesn't exist. Palestinians did not just wake up one day and start hating Jews. Islam was not the problem. Occupation is the problem. Taking center stage today is Dr. Omar Suleiman, an American Muslim scholar, civil rights leader, writer, and public speaker. He's the founder and president of Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research. In today's episode, he discusses the oppression of pro-Palestinian voices in the West and the growing Islamophobia and how it lends itself to racism. So the world is witnessing the dehumanizing double standards when it comes to Palestine and Palestinians. This is something that you speak about. Tell us why it's so important for you and why you feel like you need to speak out about this. On a personal level, it touches every single fiber of my existence. As a human being, you know, they say you don't need to be a Muslim to care about Palestine or a Palestinian or an Arab. You just need to be human. And I would hope to be a decent human being. And so any human being, I think, seeing the atrocious nature of the occupation over years and years unresolved, the expansion of aggression against an innocent, defenseless people would evoke a certain type of outrage and empathy at the same time. As a Muslim, I'm driven by my faith, the same faith that drives me to speak out against the oppression of any group of people, the starvation, the uh, murder, the oppression, the robbing of just basic notions of dignity. You know, when, when Allah says in the Quran, we start from the place that the child of Adam is meant to be honored, is meant to be dignified. And so as a Muslim, I am brought to the table because of the sanctity of my brothers and sisters in Palestine. And of course, the particular sanctity of Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. And then as a Palestinian, every single Palestinian in the world has been touched by the initial Nakba in some way. We have generational trauma. Either our parents were forcibly displaced or we ourselves were forcibly displaced. Either we still live in some cut out, isolated piece of land that we can't call Palestine legally in the international arena and are reminded daily of our status as an occupied people without a Palestinian passport and without the freedom of movement, or we live in other parts of the world and do not have access to our parents' homes, to property that may still be registered in our names, or we are told in our classrooms, in our universities, in our workplaces that we don't exist apparently. So this touches every single fiber of my existence as a human being, as a Muslim, as a Palestinian, and of course, as an American whose government is complicit, directly complicit 
in murdering people like myself. And so it touches every fiber of my existence. At no point is Palestine ever really distant from me. And it wasn't distant um, through your mother's poetry, was it? No, it wasn't. So I, I've spoken about this multiple times. You know, my earliest memories are growing up watching my mother in agony. Well, she used to write poetry about Palestine. She used to write poetry about Bosnia. She used to write poetry about Kashmir. And there was something very profound about my mother's poetry. And I think about the symbolism of the Intifada, about the collective call for liberation as a whole. You know, we have all of these symbols and all these images that are not entirely unlike the stream of images that we're getting right now out of Gaza. But people and items become frozen in time in the capacity of Palestine. My mother wrote a poem about the stone, the rock, which symbolizes our struggle. And uh, she called it Hajarun uh, Samit, the silent stone. This idea of the revolutionary stone, that how dare you say that I am a silent stone. I speak to the volumes of decades of my people's oppression. And it really hits home for me when I, when I think of the images. You know, we talk about Muhammad al-Durra being held by his father and what that provoked in the world at the time. And I remember particularly Faris Ouda. Uh, many of you can recall the image of a young Faris Ouda in Gaza, the child in front of the tank, David and Goliath, and our first computer that we ever got, that was the wallpaper of the computer. And then I came to realize that Faris Ouda was a distant relative of mine, number one, from the same family of Al-Ouda. Number two, I realized that some point in my adult life, I said, you know, that kid, had he lived, would have been my age now. He's speaking through that picture on a, on a regular basis through his struggle. But if he was alive, he would be speaking on panels and protesting as an adult for the same struggle that claimed his life back then. And so you have these timeless pictures, these timeless symbols that remind us that until Palestine is free. No Palestinian will rest until Palestine is free. No Muslim will feel comfortable with their faith until Palestine is free. No human being will be content in the realization of their humanity until Palestine is free. We have to continue to make sure that that stone speaks loudly and that those children that have faced the most brutal army in the world do not stand up against that tyrant alone. What do you think is at the core of this dehumanization by some towards the Palestinians? You know, the Palestinians represent the culmination of various bigotries against the Muslim world, against Islam, against the Arab, um, against the other, especially in a Western context. Uh, we're not just the villain. Uh, we're the most dangerous villain in the movie. We're not just the object of fear in an Orientalist play, we are the last boss. <laughs> We're unfortunately framed in Islamophobia, in the image of the Arab savage, 
and we threaten by our very existence a well-funded, dominant, racist ideology that has lobbies and PACs that can unfortunately co-opt politicians that otherwise might have been decent human beings and suppress the voices or seek to suppress the voices of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so in our existence as Palestinians, we unfortunately, just by our existence, can be otherized to where we're a threat when we live amongst other people and we're a threat when we seek to live in our own land. At the core of it is the last breath of the colonialism that has ravaged this side of the world. Israel is the last colonial project that exists in this part of the world. And in America's imperialism, Israel must exist to extend its interests and expand in order to expand its interests. And that is what multiple scholars have said over time. And so by our existence, we continue to stand in the way of that and serve as a viable obstacle on the way to realizing that full colonial project, that permanent base through which America can, can continue and Western interests can continue to spread through the region unhindered and unopposed. We know, and these are the facts, that the story of Palestine is a story of occupation. It is a story of an occupied people fighting against, as you call it, a colonialist power. But there's an attempt by some to drive a wedge, to ter- turn it into a religious war. It's the Jews against the Muslims. Is that divide deepening these days, do you think? And you yourself has been, have been accused of anti-Semitism, despite you saying you've gone out and stood in solidarity with Jewish people in the United States. Tell us about that and how it makes you feel to be accused of anti-Semitism. Well, look, you know, first they try to redefine our own terms and tell us how we can use them as Muslims. So the word jihad needs to be scrapped now because of your misunderstanding of it. The, word Allah, the words Allahu Akbar are threatening because of your misunderstanding of it. And then they tell us that our words of liberation are in fact calls to genocide. So don't say intifada anymore because the word intifada to you represents violence and terrorism. And then they try to redefine their own framings of anti-Semitism so that they can silence us when we challenge the oppression against our people. And so you neither allow me to speak in my own terms nor do you allow me to defend myself against your oppression. And so at some point, I think we have come to the conclusion that we are just not willing to operate in your warped, twisted world. We're not willing to operate in your malicious framings. We will defend the sanctity of our people and we will stand with the oppressed and the targeted and the unfairly maligned wherever they are. And that means that, you know what, if... If there is genuine anti-Semitism in front of me, every single time an innocent Jewish person or a synagogue is targeted in the United States, I will be the first one to go and stand on the basis of principle and justice and the sanctity of human life to protect that life. And in that same breath, of course, I am going to stand for the sanctity and the protection of my own people, a cause 
that has yielded my being born in the United States in the first place. And so you don't get to rob me of my own resistance by your misapplied framings, nor do you get to mistranslate our movement, nor do you get to take away our terminology. It's not something that we accept anymore as Palestinians wherever we live. And so we are choosing to insist upon our maps, to insist upon our uh, culture, to insist upon our existence, and we will always be free Palestinians that are longing for a free Palestine, no matter who stands in the way, and no matter what unfair accusations are thrown towards us. And I'll say here, because it's very important, because I am a Palestinian American, I feel for my people in Palestine, and I also genuinely want good for my neighbors. And there are many confused, uninformed, or misinformed Americans in regards to Palestine, in regards to the war on Iraq, in regards to many of America's ugly, unholy wars on the Muslim world and in the Middle East. And I often challenge them by saying that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were killed in Iraq on the basis of a lie, the lie that there were weapons of mass destruction. Can you tell me the story of a single person that was killed in your name? And the answer is almost always, I don't know who they are. I can't name a single Iraqi. I can't tell you a single story. When it comes to the Palestinians, when it comes to the inability of the average American to see through all of the layers of misinformation, not only do they not know the story of the Palestinian people, but they have unfortunately assigned a propensity to violence to every single Muslim in the world. Right. So that brings me to my next question. Religion is being used as an excuse to justify the suffering of peoples, including now, as we see in Gaza. How do you, as a faith leader, uh, not let Islam or Christianity or Judaism become scapegoats in this way? By insisting on facts. Uh, Jews have lived in the Muslim world for as long as Islam has existed in the Muslim world. Uh, Anti-Semitism is the crime of the West. You have historic Jewish communities in the Muslim world. Show me that counterpart in the West. It doesn't exist. Zionism is an inherently racist project and in and of itself has a layer of anti-Semitism to it because the idea was to dispose in many ways of the Jewish people from Europe and from the West. Palestinians did not just wake up one day and start hating Jews. Islam was not the problem. Occupation is the problem. If Muslims came and kicked Palestinians out of their land and established an illegal state on their territory and mistreated them the way that Israel is mistreating them, then we would resist that Muslim state. So this has nothing to do with religion. That is based in not just a lack of facts, but based entirely in fear. And so religion cannot be scapegoated nor should religion be used to continue the war on the Palestinians. Mention uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who said that Israel is in a religious war and I stand with Israel unapologetically. So it's clearly not us who have the, the problem of religious fanaticism. In fact, it is the Speaker of the House, it is multiple members of Congress, 
It's the president of the United States who stands unapologetically as a Zionist and who speaks with such disregard for Palestinian humanity that people in his own country, children are being slaughtered in his own, in his own country and abroad because of his inability to That's recognize the, the lack so of So when this dehumanizing language starts from the top, does it then give free reign for others to continue with this hateful rhetoric? Absolutely. Uh, look. Is that what you're seeing in the United States? Yes. We have a president whose legacy will be genocide. We call him Genocide Joe for a reason. So, um, you, can't, you can't fight that evil if you can't name it properly. And it is important for us to no longer allow the Democratic Party or a Democratic president to say, well, I am the lesser of the two evils. How much more evil can you get? than an average of 10,000 civilians being killed a month. You don't get much more evil than that. And so we're not going to fall for it anymore. We will hold him accountable. And we look forward to holding every single politician that has stood for this genocide accountable come November 24. Through the election. <laughs> Through the election in the US. Yes. Okay. Through the elections. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being a violent Muslim. <laughs> Why do you think this anti-Palestinian rhetoric and this bigotry is not being dealt with perhaps in the same way as other forms of discrimination? Well, we've been saying for years that Islamophobia is the only uh, acceptable form of bigotry in the mainstream arena in the United States, politically, socially, culturally. You don't see people lose their jobs for anti-Palestinian bigotry. That's before this incredible assault on humanity that we're witnessing right now. Again, I think that it's the culmination of multiple bigotries. There has been an enormous amount of funding that has been put into the dehumanization of the Palestinians and the suppression of any voice that speaks to our humanity. And so you have kids that are getting booted from their law firms, that have their faces being put on trucks, that are getting kicked out of their schools and out of their companies because of something that they tweeted or posted or shared on social media five, 10 years ago. But you have people that spew the most repugnant form of anti-Palestinian bigotry, and they just get promoted in their jobs and in their careers. And so this is why we say that anti-Palestinian bigotry is indeed an extension of Islamophobia, even if not all Palestinians are Muslims. And in fact, the existence of Palestinian Christians is a major obstacle to the framing of this issue by these extremists. Why? Because most Americans have no idea that there are Palestinian Christians that are living under this assault as well, that there are Palestinian churches being bombed. So this confuses the average American mind. But with all of that being said, I think it's important for us as well as Muslims to not fall for the insincere, disingenuous voice that is supposed to be against Islamophobia, yet extends anti-Palestinian bigotry, whether that comes from the president or for those who have claimed to be our interfaith allies in the space of multi-faith work or on the ground. I have said this to multiple people. When Wadir was murdered, six-year-old boy in Chicago, I heard from people that I had not heard from before. Uh, his murder that extended their condolences. 
while at the same time their social media and their voices and their institutions were justifying the genocide in Gaza. And I made it a point to say to each and every single one of those voices, and I say it here today, that if you have justified in your mind the erasure of this many innocent Palestinian civilians in Palestine, then you are an Islamophobe, whether you like it or not. And by your definition of an Islamophobe, what's the difference between a child in Gaza and a child in Chicago? And in fact, what's the difference between I, a Palestinian child, and that child in Gaza, had I been born there and unable to escape, that same person that extended their sympathy to me would have been justifying my murder. Dr. Omar Suleiman, thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.